Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. And today we have a very special guest, Joseph Habouche, the, the editor of the Lebanon Desk at the Daily Star. Hello, Joseph. Welcome to the Hi show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Glad, glad to see you outside of the office, but in another like sort of semi-quasi work-related uh, environment. <laughs> Wish I could say the same, Ben. Oh, oh. <laughs> wow. That's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joseph's here today because we're going to be talking about the southern border, Lebanon's southern border, uh, which, you know, has been in the news an awful lot uh, lately, especially because we've had this sort of shuttle diplomacy going on. And that's sort of all come to a head now. Uh, Joseph has reported on that extensively. Um, and so we're, we're going to get to that in a little bit. But first off, the news of the week and what's going on. Uh, of course, it's summer here in Beirut, which means more power cuts. But that might change, not this summer, but maybe sometime in the future, according to the government's electricity plan, uh, just on Friday. This is really exciting. Just on Friday, the energy ministry announced a pre-qualification round for the first two power plants, new power plants out of this uh, like new super ambitious program to build six new power plants. Uh, so the electricity plan, it's like inching its way forward, which is really exciting. Um, so maybe at some point in the future, we will not have like the rampant power cuts that we always have during the summer. And, and of course, the other reason that the electricity issue is so important is because it's a huge drain on state coffers. We had other news this week about that, uh, talking about the budget. The uh, This past week, the Finance and Budget Committee in Parliament passed the 2019 state budget. So now it goes on to the full parliament, and that's going to be happening this week. So like, finally, this was all supposed to happen before the end of 2018. But finally, like seven months late, we are getting to the point where we're going to have a budget, hopefully, for the, the year 2019. And so like all eyes are going to be focused on parliament on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's when they're meeting. And, and there's going to be a lot of debate about, about this. Uh, we're, we're expecting protests on uh, Tuesday, at very least, from uh, veterans who are going to be protesting a new tax on their pensions. Uh, the the tax had originally been 3%. Uh, it has been cut down in the latest version to 1.5%. But of course, there's still people who are unhappy that there's any tax at all. And of course, there's that worry that once you introduce a new, a new tax, that makes it easier to then increase it at some point in the future. So there's going to be that. Uh, there, there's a whole lot of other things in this budget. Uh, supposedly, the committee cut the, the the budget deficit down to uh, 6.59% of GDP, which is like a full percentage point lower than what cabinet had already done. Um, so there's definitely a, a lot of people who, who are going to see cuts that they don't like. Uh, and so there's going to be quite a bit of, of focus on that and, and a lot of controversy surrounding that. But there's there's also, I think, like a, some quieter stuff going on in, in this budget. I, I got the opportunity to interview uh, Ibrahim Karan the other day. Uh, he's the head of the committee, the, the finance committee. And he, he was telling me that like they actually did a few really interesting things like re restricting cabinet's authority to just like move money around and, and use debt, like the issuance of debt for things that m maybe like they, they shouldn't necessarily be able to do without going back to the parliament. They basically have brought in like the budgets of CDR and other institutions that take money like grants and loans from international institutions. They, they put these institutions like sort of into the normal budgetary process and into the normal oversight process, uh, which is a huge deal. It, um, it's something that uh, a lot of people have complained about for years that like this money that comes in from like the World Bank and other other places 
just it like there's no oversight uh, and we don't know exactly where the money is going or if it's being spent effectively or not. Uh, so that's a huge deal. Also, if you've ever looked at the budget, it's kind of weird because there actually isn't just one single budget. There's actually kind of there's four budgets. There's the regular budget. And then there are three what's called budget annexes, which is this really bizarre thing. And those three annexes are for the National Lottery, the Directorate General of Cereals and Sugar Beets and telecommunications, which basically Ogero. And it's this really sort of bizarre system. And what they've done Kanan told me is that they've actually introduced a clause that that will, you know, not in this budget, but for the 2020 budget, make put all of these merge all of these into the regular state budget. And so like, that's a really huge thing, because that there, there are a number of things that we don't really have time to get into uh, that that are connected to this, but basically it just means that like, you have a, a centralized sort of like, system and oversight authority and you don't have certain issues with like transfers of funds uh that you normally have especially when it comes to like the telecommunications sector but yeah these things are all sort of like quieter things like i think all of the attention is going to be focused on the austerity side of things but if parliament actually keeps these reforms that the committee passed then that'll be really really huge not for this year and not for like cutting the budget deficit or anything but for just for like just for regularizing state finances uh and and also for sort of like cutting down on potential avenues of corruption uh of financial corruption in the state having said all of that though there there's one thing that could sort of upset the the cart on this and that is according to the constitution you need to have what's called a closure of accounts before you pass a budget so before you pass the 2019 budget According to the Constitution, you should close the accounts for the 2017 fiscal year. And like those accounts are ready to go, but they haven't been passed by cabinet. Cabinet needs to pass them and then parliament needs to pass it. And Nabi Berri came out this past week and said, we need to pass this. This is what the Constitution says. But we we there's this issue here. There's this problem because cabinet is not meeting and cabinet has not met since the Kabrushmoon uh, incident uh, where uh, two people died. So I don't know. There may not be a budget this week if this uh, if people really insist on uh, passing the closure of accounts or the other possibility is that they'll just go ahead and pass everything or I guess they could just pass the budget and be open to like a, a, a challenge at the Constitutional Council uh, over not doing it the constitutional way and passing the closure of accounts as well. So... Uh, the, the question really is, what is cabinet going to do? Is cabinet going to actually meet and, and, and pass the closure of accounts or not? There's something about the unaudited closure accounts that I discovered this week. Actually, um, a friend of mine who's Mohammed Zbib, the editor of Capital and Al-Akhbar, Ras Al-Mal, uh, the economic section. He told me that from 1994 till 2004, or 2003, the cabinets were passing all of these unaudited closure accounts as the closure accounts, which were supposed to be the audited ones, just in order to pass a budget. So this was something that was, you know, obviously uh, on the verge of being illegal or unconstitutional, but they were doing it as a way of just making things a bit faster. And now, after all of these years of no audited closure accounts, the law of 2017, the budget, said that you have to, the parliament has to pass all of these laws that were not passed during the past 20 years or something like that, 
But then when they actually went to do it, they only considered them to be from 2004 till today because they considered that from 1993 till 2004, things were already passed. But these things were all unaudited. And this is really crazy because through all of this period, they were just randomly passing these unaudited closure accounts without any, you know, accountability or anything. We don't know how how much they actually spent on everything, but they just passed them. And now they're saying it's history and they were passed. So it's fine. Well, well, not everybody is right. So that's also why back in March, Ali Hassan Khalil sent a report on state finances that began from 1993 uh, and went all the way up through 2016, 17, I believe. It it was precisely for this reason, because, yeah, there's a lot of questions surrounding uh, the closures of accounts for like the years 1993 through 2003, uh, which were technically passed by parliament, but with reservations, that reservation being that nobody's actually audited these things. Yeah, exactly. So we'll see now what happens with with that, if they will pass all of these again, or they will select only the the ones after 2004, because this is a question. Yeah. And and the the first item on cabinet's agenda, or at least the first item that was on cabinet's agenda before Basile's boys didn't show up the other week, uh, (laughs) was uh, the closures of accounts for uh, 2004 through 2017. The only one of those that has been audited is 2017. Yeah. You know, something something that's interesting is that Birri, uh, last week, when he called for this parliamentary session, well, the three-day session next week, some some took it as a sign that he, because of the situation in the country, the political instability, um, you had the uh, IMF report and, and, and all this negative, uh, I'd say all this negative uh, reporting on the country and the, and the economic situation. Some thought, you know, he's calling for this parliamentary session to pass, to endorse the, the, the budget and, um, you know, boost investor confidence a little bit or send a positive signal to the international community. And then yesterday or the day before, he calls for a cabinet session to be held before parliament meets when, uh, I mean, as of now, it looks a bit difficult. So, um, I mean, we'll see, like you guys said, we'll see where that goes. Okay, so will cabinet actually meet? And this is the big question this week, because since June 30, the cabinet has not met due to the clashes that we talked about in the last episode. So it's been a while. And the main reason is that uh, the tensions between Talal Islan and Walid Jumlat over the clashes have manifested in both people not wanting to hand over their militants and in Islam calling for the suspects from the PSP t- side to be uh, tried at the Judicial Council, which is controversial because Judicial Council is concerned with very, very major war crimes and sectarian crimes. And uh, there seems yeah, to so be it's a specialized court that exists, like basically for crimes to be prosecuted that like the idea is, oh, they, they couldn't get a fair trial in the regular court system because it's so sensitive. And so there's this like very like specialized court made up of like some of the top judges in the country that would take care of these specialized cases. It's, it's the same court that like tried Samir Jaja back in the 90s. Um, so, so it's it, 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 it's a big deal to move it to the Judicial Council or not. And, and it would also um, it would also lift the political immunity off of the PSP, which would could pave the way for, um, you know, what Jumblad fears is that the the PSP, they would face the same fate that the LF did in in, in the 90s, um, where they basically collapse. And so uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of fear over that. Yeah, and so it's complicated, and there seems to be a deal that needs to be made between Islan and Jumblad. And who makes deals in this country? It's only one person, really. Abbas Ibrahim. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Abbas Ibrahim is on is doing the, some shuttle diplomacy to fix this. 
So it seems to be all about uh, who is a suspect and who is a witness and this kind of thing. Well, Jumla tweeted about it saying uh, they're trying to consider people in the convoy of Salah Kharib as witnesses while they were participating in this and the thing that led to the death. So they are responsible as well. There seems to be this kind of tension. And uh, But Hariri seems to be optimistic. On Friday, he said that through Abbas Ibrahim's diplomacy, it seems that in a couple of days we will have some solution. So maybe we will see some meeting between Rjumblat uh, and Islam, maybe not, but everyone is very concerned about this because it's keeping the, the cabinet from actually doing stuff and, and it needs to resume its work. Okay, the and of course the other big story this week is uh, the U.S. announcing sanctions on Hezbollah and the responses. And Nasrallah spoke on Friday night as well, had an interview. Um, so very quickly... This past week, the Treasury Department announced sanctions on um, Hamad Rad, uh, I mean, Sharri and Wafi Safa. Rad and Sharri are two MPs, sitting MPs, elected by the people. <laughs> Rad is actually the head of Hezbollah's parliamentary bloc. And, and then the, the third person uh, who was who sanctioned, Wafi Safa, he's sort of like Hezbollah's security chief. Now, all three of these guys, I mean, they... They, they do a lot of interacting with other politicians, with like state agencies. They, they, they do a lot of like, I guess, the institutional governmental, like intergovernmental work of Hezbollah. And so uh, th- this is a really big deal. This is like the U.S. ratcheting things up once again, uh, deciding to go after these people who not only play these very prominent uh, sort of public roles, uh, but also like going against you know, sitting in peace, people who were popularly elected, which is which is a really big step. It, it's uh, it's unclear to me why, like, they didn't name other MPs and other ministers. Uh, hey, but, hey, don't encourage them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I, I mean, like, now the question is, of course, well, they, they probably will at some point, right? Like, it's putting yeah. others on notice that you, you could get sanctioned. You can't rely on, like, being a member of parliament to be immune from getting basically shut off from the uh, international financial system. Yeah. But the fear the fear now is, uh, the big question is what's next? Are they going to go after, I mean, you know, it's expected they'll go after more Hezbollah MPs, but do they go after ML MPs? Do they go after FPM, you know, their other allies just for speaking to them or coordinating with them? Um, that's the big question. But as as one diplomat... Or do they, do they go after Jamil Jaba, who right. is not a Hezbollah member, but he is sort of like... The reason that he is the health minister is because Hezbollah nominated him. And supposed to be going to the U.S. soon for... Uh, for, for a conference, not sponsored by the by, by the U.S. government, but nonetheless going to the U.S. Um, but as one diplomat put it to me last week, that uh, the gloves are off now. Uh, the U.S., like you said, uh, has really ratcheted things up. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the reactions to this were, were pretty stark. Uh, Nabi Berri, Speaker of Parliament, Amal movement leader, who's allied with Hezbollah, uh, called it an attack on parliament and on Lebanon. Um, and then uh, Nasrallah himself came out in an interview on Friday night and and said that, uh, you know, the, this, is, this is a new thing. They were, these uh, people, they were elected by the Lebanese people. It is an insult to the Lebanese state and to parliament. <laughs> and but he, he also added that it was an honor for Hezbollah to be placed on such a list. <laughs> yeah, he said he said anytime anytime uh, one of our guys gets sanctioned, he gets he starts getting phone calls saying congratulations because for for us it's an honor. <laughs> I don't think it has too too much of an effect on them. And I don't think Hezbollah was using Western Union and OMT and and other bank accounts for their salaries and wire transfers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've said this before, but I I think that the U.S. needs to rethink the term specially designated global terrorist like. Like that just kind of sounds badass. Like uh, you gotta you gotta think about the optics of this. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, but Nasrallah also had a lot of other things to say, and it was like three hours that he was doing this interview, right? Um, and and Joseph, you you were in the office for all of that, watching all of this. Uh, you wrote the story on it. <laughs> he, he he did comment on like the Druze issue, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. He uh, so. I mean, all eyes were on him, what he was going to say about this. And of course, he left it in the three hour, 20 minute interview for the last half an hour or so. But, um, you know, he blasted Walid Jumblat and basically put the nail in the coffin on, on the relationship between them for now, for the time being. You know, he's, uh, I don't think it's in Hezbollah's interest for this to escalate if we want to talk about their stance. Um, you know, they, they want to see stability come back as soon as possible um, to the country. They don't want to see this escalate because they have you know, everything they want right now in, in terms of the government, uh, parliament and whatnot. But I mean, his comments were, you know, didn't come as a surprise. He was backing his ally, Talal Islan, you know, the rival of, of Jumblat. Like he said, there's communications, there's phone calls being made with Wafit Safa, the guy who's just uh, sanctioned. But, um, you know, I think they're waiting to see what Abbas Ibrahim and then, as, as Nasrallah put it, the three, the three leaders, Aoun, Birri, Hariri, are going to do in the next couple of days. Uh, and, and he also talked about potential war with Israel, uh, basically warning Israel, like, you know, stop threatening to bomb us back to the Stone Age. We can also <laughs> exact like quite a bit of damage on you. And and also the Israelis know this. Yeah. And, and so it's in nobody's interest, really, for, for things to escalate right now, which, which I think is probably a pretty good reading of the strategic situation right now. There's sort of a detente like we, we know that if there is any sort of conflict between the two, any major conflict between the two, it's going to be absolutely fucking devastating for both sides. Yeah, and I think, and, and he was speaking on the, what is it, thirteen-year uh, anniversary since the beginning of the, uh, since the beginning of the July two thousand six war between Israel and Hezbollah, and he, you know, it was a chance for him to come out and uh, talk about Hezbollah's new, how how they've developed, how they've improvised their. Uh, their rockets, their intelligence, uh, et cetera. But for as much as he was escalating, you know, and talking about uh, the deterrence and what Hezbollah could do to, to, to Israel, he was um, he was also pretty adamant, and he repeated multiple times that he doesn't predict a war. Um, he doesn't think it's in anyone's interest. So I think it's just a little still, you know, the, the whole chess game between the two. I don't think there's, uh, as he put it, uh, anything in the near future. Um, he also mentioned something really interesting, and that's that the United States apparently, according to him, has been trying to establish a line, like a back channel of communication to Hezbollah. Yeah, I don't think that's tied into this, but uh, I mean, it comes on the heels of uh, of this U.S. mediation or attempts to mediate uh, a, a an agreement on the border, the maritime border dispute. And uh, that's the thing that, you know, David Satterfield, who was just, you know, he recently, he's now the ambassador to Turkey, but he was the one that was picking up the latest round of mediation uh, efforts by, you know, the U.S. to try to solve this uh, maritime border dispute. And, and, and that's really what we want to talk about today as our main topic. This whole shuttle diplomacy that Satterfield's been doing that now seems to be, okay, Satterfield is now in Turkey. So obviously his efforts here are coming to a close and are they going to actually bear fruit uh, or, or not? But I, I think like, first off, we should back up just a little bit and, and give everybody a little bit of background on what the border disputes are. And I guess, I guess like the positions of the parties and, and what they want, right? The, the land border is sort of like the 
the longest contested one, right? And and it's been disputed, like especially since uh, Israel's withdrawal from South Lebanon in 2000. Back then, the UN drew the, what's called the Blue Line, um, and that was based on the the border between Mandatory Palestine, which was overseen by the British, and like Mandatory Lebanon, which was overseen by the French. But when they drew the Blue Line, it wasn't like universally accepted. Lebanon still reserves, as it says, like, oh, there's like 13 points that yeah. we disagree with. Um, and none, none of these points are like huge. It's not like, oh, it's like five kilometers yeah, it's like, off. Yeah, yeah, it's about 20 meters here, 100 meters there. And uh, I think they add up to around maybe around 500 uh, meters or so. Yeah, across not, the thirteen points. But at the same time, like these, there, there, there are important places, uh, sure. and, and especially for Lebanon, there are three important places for Lebanon that like really get brought up an awful lot, and and that's uh, the Sheba Farms, which is probably the most famous one, uh, but also uh, Kfarshuba, and then uh, the village of Khajar. And and those three are like the Lebanese are like no, we these are ours, and the the line needs to reflect that. Yeah, and in Nasrallah, it's uh, just to backtrack on on Friday night when Nasrallah was speaking, he he hinted that uh, there were a couple proposals that were being floated around uh, about an exchange of land between Israel and Lebanon, and that you know because of those three areas you just mentioned, that there may or there may be proposals uh, floating around that you know give us we'll stay in this area that we've uh, we've occupied, and then we'll get you know here's fifty meters that we'll take, and then you guys will get two hundred. Uh, I don't know square meters elsewhere, but Nasrallah said that you know these fifty meters that they these fifty square meters that they may want are strategically or militarily more important, such as in Kfarshuba. You know they have the Kfarshuba Hills, which I think are about to twenty one hundred uh, meters above sea level. You know it's high, so in overseas you can see in, into Israel, you can see into Lebanon's Bekaa. Mm. So you know those are. Those are. That, I think that's something that's a ways off in terms of uh, a solution to that. That's that's going to require something bigger, uh, an international agreement, whether it's the U.S. Iran talks, well, you know, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So, so we've got the border dispute, but then also within about the past decade or so, there's been a lot of focus on the maritime border. Um, and really, what's driven this is sort of the rush to exploit potential hydrocarbons in. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea or under the Mediterranean Sea. And and so back in 2007, Lebanon signed an agreement with Cyprus that took something called point one as the southernmost point for Lebanon's exclusive economic zone. But w- when it signed this deal, like w- these deals typically can contain a disclaimer saying that, you know, if there's uh, a negotiation with a third country, like in this case, Israel, then, you know, Point one could change, right? Because it depends on this third party, and th- this is standard. This is a standard part of agreements like this. Also, with this, Lebanon's parliament never actually ratified the deal with Cyprus. But then, in two thousand nine, the Lebanese Commission that was looking into this matter decided that, oh no, point one actually isn't geographically accurate. It's not the like the the southernmost point of our maritime border. The, the southernmost point is actually seventeen kilometers south of that, at a place that they uh, called point twenty three. Now. The problem with that, though, is that in 2010, Israel and Cyprus signed an agreement that took point one as the the meeting point of all three of the borders, right? And so Cyprus agreed this with Lebanon, and then Cyprus agreed the same point, point one, with Israel. Of course, with that agreement between Cyprus and Israel, there, there was that same like standard clause that, well, 
this endpoint could change based on negotiations with a third country, in this case, Lebanon. And so basically what you have is now, I mean, it, it makes sense. The Israelis are saying, oh, well, point one, you agreed on point one before it should be point one. Our experts say it's point one. Lebanon saying, oh, no, our experts say it's point 23. Of course, obviously, in their interests commercially <laughs> and in terms of extracting any resources that might be in this area. And, and the area is like 856 square kilometers. That, that's totally in dispute, uh, even though it's only like a 17 kilometer at the very end difference. Like if you add up this sort of triangle that goes basically from the point of the land border out to this, it's, you know, 850 square kilometers, which is a significant chunk of area. And for Lebanon, from from our side of things, we have three blocks that contain parts of the disputed area. Blocks 8, 9, and 10 are down along the southern border. Now, for blocks 9 and 10, it's sort of like a small amount of the, the, their area is the uh, disputed area. But block 8, like half of it is disputed or something. So back in 2017, blocks 8, 9, and 10 all went up on the auction block. Block 9 was the only one that was like bid on and awarded. But like Block 9, it's uh, 1,472 square kilometers. About 8% of that is disputed. So we, we have an active block that has been bid on, that has been awarded to this consortium. There's like uh, Total, Eni, and Novatech. The um, Russian, Italian, and uh, French companies. Exactly. But part of it's disputed. So will these companies actually you know, drill in the disputed area? No, of course not. And they, they've said this, you know, like we, we will drill. They're contractually obligated to drill, but we're going to drill like 25 kilometers to the north, like far away from this. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's still important. Like, so this this dispute is still really, really important for, for a few reasons. Like number one, just like the national pride aspect, of course. Uh, but then if Lebanon ever wants to actually auction off block eight, which is halfway disputed, basically, then they really need to come to some sort of agreement, right? And then also, you know, if in some chance, by some chance, block nine, they, they end up uh, doing an extra, uh, exploratory drilling and they find a reserve down there of natural gas that, say, is large enough, maybe it ends up going into the disputed area. Well, how do you do revenue sharing, if, if the area is disputed, you know, that you may not be able to exploit what you find because it's disputed. And that yeah. could be a really huge problem. So that's one of the huge drivers to actually resolve this problem. And that, that was one of uh, Satterfield's, I guess you could say now, uh, failed attempts. Last year, he was he was floating that idea of a of a joint company or, you know, run by run by a third party. In terms of uh, who would you know run that company if there was, like you said if there was uh, natural gas found in in joint areas or disputed areas yeah yeah and his efforts so he's not the first one to try yeah. right so we back in like 2012 Frederick Hoff who was then a State Department official he, he tried to resolve this and he he proposed like this like legally binding line with sort of a buffer zone in which no petroleum activities, exploration, extraction could take place. According to reports, this gave about 500 square kilometers of the disputed zone to Lebanon, but the proposal went nowhere. The Lebanese side, like Beirut wasn't too happy about this, uh, even though it gave them a large portion, like, you know, two thirds or so of what they wanted. But, but at the same time, Beirut didn't reject or accept it. So 
anyway, Hoff left. He was replaced uh, on this issue, on this file, by Amos Hochstein. And in 2013, Hochstein uh, reportedly proposed drawing sort of a, a temporary maritime blue line. So basically using the same process to draw the blue line, where it's sort of like this tripartite United Nations, Israel, Lebanon, deciding on, you know, where these points are with, you know, outside experts and, uh, you know, outside people sort of providing their recommendations. Let me let me just interrupt you there yeah. for a second, um, because this, like you said, this blue line, I think uh, Bidre, the speaker here, has has talked about, he, he's referred to it as a white line now in the, in the, in the sea. And, um, you know, uh, like you said, Hochstein's proposal was you know, it's been built upon. I mean, Lebanon took it, Beirut took it, and has been building upon it in terms of trying to find a solution. And um, because they saw the progress that UNIFIL has made, the, the UN peacekeeping force in South Lebanon, in terms of the land border. And so that's why um, mainly Bidi has been taking the, taking the lead on the, on the negotiations and deciding what Lebanon wants or doesn't want in the, in the maritime border. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, trying to involve the UN in the, in the maritime dispute, that's, that's been a major sticking point, a point of contention between Israel and Lebanon uh, on the, in those efforts. Yeah. And, and Beirut saw Hochstein's proposal a lot more favorably than they viewed right, right. Uh, Hoff's proposal, but like in, in part because of like the UN's role. Right. right. Um, but at the same time, Hochstein's proposal didn't really go anywhere. And that's probably for a number of factors. So number one, like Lebanon just had a lot going on in 2013, 2014. There were a lot of security incidents. We uh, postponed elections uh, twice back then. Also, we came to the end of uh, Michel Sleiman's term as president. And then there was just this presidential vacuum right. in which it was just so hard to get anything done. Uh, and, and so all of this, at least from the Lebanese side, it didn't really work. And I assume like there wasn't just as Lebanon was happier with the Hochstein proposal than it was with the Hoff proposal. Israel was probably less happy with it. Right. Right. Because uh, they would prefer for whatever reason, uh, less of a U.N. role or no U.N. role at all. They'd rather it be just like Israel and Lebanon or uh, the U.S. mediating. And, and like you said, I mean, everything was paralyzed in terms of state institutions. You didn't have a president. So, I mean, a decision like this needs consensus among all parties. So that was another you know reason it was delayed. And then Obama, his term came to an end and Hochstein, you know, he was. Yeah, that uh, was that. That was that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then under under Trump, like things just sort of like nothing really happened for a little bit. Right. And, and until Satterfield came on the scene. Yeah. And it's it's been interesting with Satterfield because I think he's made, uh, for lack of a better term, the most progress, yet it's been the most publicized. Um, and so that his relationship with with Lebanon had gone up and down. He was ambassador, you know, to Lebanon previously. So he had a he had a relationship with with folks over here, such as Bidi, even though if, if, if it wasn't the best relationship, he still knew, you know, the way of thinking here and, and vice versa. But, you know, he came out and uh, it really came to, you know, things started to materialize, I guess you could say, when um, you know, Tillerson, when he was when he was uh, secretary of state, came over, tried to, you know, make make some headway, make some breakthrough and that didn't really work. Satterfield continued those efforts. And yeah, so I, I believe in, uh, uh, you know, the beginning of 2018, Satterfield was uh, he came out, started trying to he started his first round of shuttle diplomacy between Beirut and, and Tel Aviv. Didn't really make any headway, but I mean, there was, he, he got the wheels back in back in motion, like they say. And um, 
then, I mean, you come, uh, things were kind of put on the back burner. Then we fast forward to this year when, uh, before Pompeo made his first visit to, uh, to Beirut, uh, you know, Satterfield came and, uh, he didn't have the best, uh, the best talk with, uh, with Lebanon and Bidity came out swinging, you know, he hadn't, he published an interview, well, he was quoted as saying, you know, that Satterfield tried to basically tell him, take it or leave it. This is what Lebanon's going to get. And, and I mean, historically, we know the way Bidity uh, thinks and acts. And Lebanon was, was pretty stubborn on that aspect and that they have their rights. They have, you know, their land and they're not going to give it, up. It's uh, surprising that a seasoned diplomat like Satterfield, who knows the area, like pissed off Bidity so much. Like yeah. you, you would think that he he would know where like the lines are and right. not to cross them. But apparently... Yeah, that didn't yeah, and it, it looked pretty bad uh, for what was then less than a week because Pompeo came um, a week after this whole in- issue and tried to smooth things over. Bitty, I've been told, in his meeting with Pompeo, kind of had a go at Satterfield. So, um, but then oh, know, that's that's awkward if the guy is like sitting on the couch. Yeah, and they're like yeah. That, that's Bitty for you. That's yeah. why he's been in power for so long. But. Um, <laughs> He, uh, yeah, and and so shortly after Pompeo left, you got, um, I can't remember the exact reason they met, but Hariri, Aon Birri and Hariri had met in Baabda to talk about some, I, I, again, I don't remember what the political issue was, but it turns out that when Birri was there, he pulled out a piece of paper and said, hey, we need to agree on uh, on a unified stance. And that's what, and the U.S. kept, and Satterfield kept saying that, you know, Lebanon needs to come up with a unified stance because there was an issue between leaders that, uh, some wanted to uh, separate the land and the maritime borders uh, in, in terms of their demarcation. And then Bidi wanted it uh, as one package because, and Nasrallah said this on Friday night, they're intertwined because the last point, the last land, uh, the last point on the land border, that's how you start which angle the the, mar- the sea, you know, the maritime border takes. Whether but is that point of point in contention? Yeah, that's that's point. They call it B1. It's right in Naura. And it's where, uh, and, and a lot of people don't know this, but every month there's a there's a meeting headed by UNIFIL where there you have an Israeli uh, official, you have a Lebanese army official in there, and they try to chat. UNIFIL sponsors, it's the, it's the head of UNIFIL, and they discuss trying to keep tensions down. If there's going to be any construction or work being done along the land border, give UNIFIL, uh, you know, ample notice that you're going to be doing this. Yeah, I think so their mantra is no surprises, right? Yeah, like, yeah. even though there's something, a surprise every like that. week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, like uh, back to the point B1, that's that's the big, you know, Israel has said, no, let's go, you know, sort out the, according to Lebanese officials, let's sort out the land, the sea border, and then we'll come back and figure out the, you know, B1 uh, land border. And then Lebanon says, no, we have to, you know, because they're all, it's one line. If you go from North Lebanon down into South Lebanon to point B1, which is the last, it's it's the point where the land meets the sea. But anyways, Lebanese leaders finally agreed. They uni- they had a unified stance. Saon presented it to the U.S. ambassador. And, and that uh, unified stance was that we want to discuss the land and the sea borders together. Right. One package. And we and, and that we would we agree for the U.S. to be, uh, you know, in these talks where there if there were to be talks. 
but uh, we want it to be under the UN, UN you know, the patronage of the UN. And a lot of people have asked, you know, what does that mean? It's basically just like the UNIFIL talks are happening, but you'd have a U.S. official and 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 the U.S. It's it would it would have been either Satterfield. It's unclear who's gonna. You know who will be. Yeah, and, and I think there's probably some intentional vagueness in there as well, just to give like you you don't necessarily want to stake out a super hard position on right. this stuff in case you have to climb down. Right, and, and you and and you know historically, it's tough to 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 argue that uh, that Unifil has not been you know objective in in any border disputes or any dispute between Israel and uh, and Lebanon, you know, and so that's why in Lebanon wants you know a senior UN official in there, whether it be. The UNSCO, you know, the UN Special Coordinator for Lebanon, who would be a direct representative of the UN Secretary General, or the UNIFIL chief, who's also, um, you know, just as knowledgeable and objective as, as, as anybody could be in those views. Because if it's under the patronage of the UN, they're the ones taking the minutes of the meeting, uh, meetings and, and writing down, you know, each what each side said. But then, again, you had disagreements that, uh, you know, it appears Satterfield has been unable to, 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 to find a breakthrough on because... Lebanon yeah, says, after after that like uh, unified position, Satterfield was going back, and he, I forget he made like three yeah, or four trips three, yeah, or something, yeah. uh, and then to Washington, then back to Beirut, and then yeah. you know all between all three stops. And things for a minute like seemed like oh my god, this might actually be happening. We had uh, the Israeli Energy Minister Yuval Steinitz come out and you know say like yeah, just, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, he said he said there's going to be talks. He could see talks hap- starting within the next you know few weeks. This was late. May, early June, and that, and he said, you know, the talks are going to be uh, inside Lebanese territory, where they where the UNIFIL, you know, currently heads those meetings in Naura, close to point B one, and even Lebanon, you know, Lebanese Bidi, and uh, like I, said, I keep saying Bidi because he's the one who's taking the lead on this, um, yeah, uh, you know, and he was positive about it. Um, the president was positive about it. Hariri was positive about it. And so it looked for a minute that, uh, you know, there was going to be a breakthrough on there. And then Satterfield went back and forth, came to Lebanon. And then um, Lebanon says Israel was, you know, reneging on, on, on previous uh, things that they had agreed to, whether it be, uh, you know, there was some talk that they wanted some things written and then they wanted to have, you know, sort of a gentleman's agreement or a verbal agreement on, on, on other issues. And, you know, for two countries that are technically at a state of war, I don't think verbal agreements are going to, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna make any yeah. any headway. Yeah. So and, and now you know where are we today? Uh, Satterfield was in Lebanon not last week, the week before. Went to went went to Israel. Lebanese officials weren't too too uh, optimistic uh, after he left last Friday. N- excuse me, not this past Friday, the Friday before. Like uh, the Israeli energy minister came out and he he voiced his frustration, saying, um, you know, that Hezbollah might be behind this stalling, which it's a bit difficult to to believe at this point, um, because uh, you know, like we said earlier in the show, I think Hezbollah it's in Hezbollah's interest to have uh, stability and calm in, in Lebanon, and, and any agreements direct indirectly with uh, with Israel would only help that. But yeah, the, the energy minister two Fridays ago said that. Uh, Despite his frustration that within the next, you know, week to 10 days that uh, it, it would be seen if there was any breakthrough. So I think the next couple of days will be crucial um, to see if anything has come out of that. If anything does come out of that, who's going to take over for, for Satterfield? Um, is it going to be David Shanker? Is it going to be David Hale? But, you know, I've been told it's going to be somebody, you know, it's going to be somebody very senior in, in the in the State Department if these talks were to happen. 
But I mean, at at the same time, we don't have any resolution on these big issues. Like it seems as though the the two issues, the land and uh, the sea borders, they've sort of been decoupled. But the exact nature of that is still very unclear. Yeah, uh, so yeah. it seems like it could go either way. And also just like who is actually mediating back when Steinitz was, you know, saying, oh, yeah, this is going to happen in a month or so. He was saying like under U.S. mediation, which was sort of like a red flag for me. Like, wait, he's he's still saying this other thing. And the Lebanese officials want it under U.N. mediation. So we don't know about that either. So yeah. it, it, I don't even know if anything has been resolved. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, let's face it, if the regardless of what the terminology is under US under UN mediation or patronage or whatever you want to call it at the end of the day it's the US that's going to be able to convince Israel or Lebanon one way or another in terms of uh of uh, I mean UN UN's definitely going to help but it's the UN the UN's not going to be able to pressure Israel as much as as, as the US is but um in terms of if anything's going to happen there's a lot of talk that things have been stalled talks have collapsed it's going to go on for another couple of years before there's more uh, more progress but on the, you also have another argument that it could be you know end of game brinksmanship in terms of maybe Israel because if we go back to Res, UN resolution 1701 which ended the July 2006 war between Hezbollah and, and Israel they had originally called for um Hezbollah giving up its, giving up their weapons uh, all across the country and they were pretty hardline about that and then um Obviously, the 1701 calls for the the withdrawal south of Litani. So, are they doing the same thing this time around? Um, will they come around to agreeing to to what they had what Lebanese officials say they had previously agreed to, or are they you know do they truly just because you also have to take into account they have elections Israeli elections coming up. So, all these things have to be taken into account as to what what's going to happen. Um, but I think the next you know week or so. Uh, will be will really tell will really show if there's going to be any breakthrough or or if it's going to be like previous attempts put on the back burner until somebody else a seasoned as Satterfield comes through and tries to find a solution. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much, Joseph, for coming on this uh, on the yeah. show. It's really great to have you. Thank you, guys. And hopefully we can have you again in the future. Yeah, definitely. It's been uh, just honestly, and it's, it's not because I'm on the podcast, but uh, you're you're you're. Your show has been, uh, I think, a huge success. I, people I speak to back back uh, in in the states are all listening to this, waiting because there's nothing like it. But uh, keep it up, and it's it is interesting. We've got, we've honestly, got a lot of a lot of listeners in the states. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would assume. And thank you for the kind words. Um, that's it for this week. We'll come back next week. Till then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, and I'm Joseph Habush. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.